Jonah chapter 3 Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published, published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Great. Hello, uh, I'm Sam, uh, as Rob said, uh, and I'm a ministry intern from Christchurch Mayfair in central London. Um, It's great to be with you today, uh, and I would love the opportunity to get to know some of you afterwards. Um, So, as you know, we're in the book of Jonah, looking at chapter 3 today, and we're going to see how the Ninevites respond to God's message. So, keep your finger in your Bible, and I'm going to pray before we start. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your words. Uh, We pray that you would help us to to feel um, this message, and to, to see that you save anyone who calls to you. Amen. Amen. So, who is the person in your life that you think is furthest from God, or least likely to become a Christian? Who is the person that when someone says about them becoming a Christian, you think, what? Them? Seriously? They are far too rude, or they're far too selfish, or they're far too wicked. Who is that person? Well, today, in Jonah chapter 3... We're going to see how God views that person and how we should think about them. As you've seen over the past couple of weeks in Jonah, uh, Jonah tried to run away from God um, when he was told to go and preach to the wicked Ninevites. And let's just say that didn't end particularly well. Uh, After his time in the stomach of a fish, uh, Jonah has changed his mind. And we jump back into the story today um, to see Jonah obediently heading to Nineveh. This is the second chance to end all second chances. Um, And right at the start of chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah the second time and gives him the same command as the first time. Go and preach to to the Ninevites. As you have seen last week at the end of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, Jonah says, salvation belongs to the Lord at the end of verse 9. Now we see how the Lord brought salvation to Jonah, both from the stomach of a fish and from his rebellious attitude. 
Jonah is now going obediently to preach to the Ninevites. But there is a bit of suspense. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen when Jonah goes to Nineveh? We know that Jonah refused to go in the first place because the Ninevites were wicked and cruel. And we're left wondering, are the Ninevites actually going to listen? Or will they kill Jonah because of the message he brings? We're going to see uh, that God sends Jonah to the wicked Ninevites and God shows mercy to the repentant Ninevites. So firstly, God sends Jonah to the wicked Ninevites. Now, I'm not sure how you picture the Ninevites in your head when we talk about them. Perhaps we often view this chapter uh, as the story of how Jonah finally obeyed God. um, And he finally listened to to God. Uh, So the Ninevites are in one sense just a bit of a plot device to show us that Jonah should obey God and therefore we should. And although this might be helpful, I think it misses the shock factor of this chapter. The real shock that we're meant to understand. To really get the truth of this chapter... I think we need to understand quite how wicked the Ninevites actually were. If you were to go to the British Museum in London, near where I live, uh, you'd be able to go and learn all about the kings of the Assyrian Empire, um, where Nineveh was at Jonah's time. Uh, So one of the kings at this time, this is King Arshurnasurpal II. Uh, He may well have been king in Nineveh at the time when Jonah was going to preach. Now, he was famous, or as famous as an Assyrian king can be, for brutally crushing a rebellion of his people after they objected to how brutal he was. So they complained that he was too brutal, and so he's famous for brutally destroying them. In his historical archives, King Ashurnasirpal II uh, details how he crushed the rebellion. Uh, It's pretty graphic, so be warned. But I I think we need to see what the Ninevites actually were like. So he says this. Of their young men and old, I took prisoners. Of some, I cut their hands and feet. Of others, I cut off their ears, noses and lips. Of the young men's ears, I made a heap. Out of the old men's heads, I made a tower. I exposed their heads as a trophy in front of the city The male children, the female children, I burned in the flames. The city I destroyed and consumed with fire. It's just abhorrent, isn't it? It's dreadfully cruel. It's outrageous wickedness and completely needless violence. It's terrible. Even by the standards of the war-based pagan empires at the time, the Ninevites were particularly cruel. Not only did King Ashurnasirpal II do these horrible things, but he writes about them in his archives boasting about them, as though his cruelty is somehow a symbol of his strength and that that's a good thing. The Ninevites uh, were particularly cruel, and especially King Ashurnasirpal II. He was a wicked man ruling a wicked society, acting in outrageously wicked ways. It doesn't come as much of a surprise to us then that Jonah wasn't keen to visit Nineveh. It wouldn't be easy preaching, and with a king like that, it may well involve his brutal murder. And even if the Ninevites did listen, surely they don't deserve God's mercy anyway. Jonah is in one sense very understandably reluctant to go to Nineveh in the first place. But God 
had big plans for Nineveh. And as we look over this striking account in chapter 3, we will see that God saves even the most wicked people. And so secondly, we see that God shows mercy to the repentant Ninevites. Look down with me from verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here we see God's message to the Ninevites through Jonah. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now I'm sure as Jonah was travelling about in this huge city of Nineveh, he probably said other things. But this is the important thing that's recorded for us in the Bible. The essence of his message. What do you make of this message? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. On first glance, it may look like a proclamation of inevitable judgment. A promise of destruction. I will destroy you. A message with the intent of scaring people so that when they are destroyed, they're just even more scared. Um, I don't know if you're a Marvel fan. Uh, I am. Uh, in the Marvel film, uh, Avengers Infinity War, the, one of the main characters, Thor, he speaks about his enemy, Thanos. His enemy, who he's really angry at. And he says this, he makes this kind of promise. He says, you know, I'm 1,500 years old. I've killed twice as many enemies as that. And every one of them would rather have killed me. I'm only alive because fate wants me alive. Thanos is just the latest in a long line of enemies and he'll be the latest to feel my vengeance. Fate wills it so. Thor is stating what he will do. A promise of destruction with the intent of scaring his enemy and making it really clear to everyone involved. But this is exactly not the type of message we find in Jonah chapter 3. Even in Jonah's message, when we look closer, we see God's intentions to have mercy and save even the wicked Ninevites. It's more of a warning with the intent of preventing the disaster than promising revenge. God's warning to the Ninevites is meant to call them to repent and not be destroyed. I guess it's a bit more like seeing your child run into the road and shouting to them, you're going to be hit by a car. It's an earnest warning intended to, to change and to stop that disaster happening. And so we see, even in the fact that Jonah was sent to give this message to the Ninevites, God wants to have mercy. He is merciful to even the most wicked people. And in God's kindness, we see in verse 5 that God's message is a success. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Even the most wicked Ninevites turn and believe God when they hear this message. They understand how serious the situation is and how much they need to change. We get a bit more detail about what this means for the Ninevites in verses 6 to 9. Uh, from verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his royal robe and covered himself with sackcloth. 
and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation to be published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, neither herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. We saw in verse 5 that all of the Ninevites repented from the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, and I think we see here how the king repents. Uh, I think we see what this means. I think we're shown the king as the representative of the Ninevites. So he kind of acts on behalf of his people and he issues the decree to all of them. So we get more detail about the king to see how they respond. The king does three things to repent, doesn't he? Look down with me at these verses. He humbles himself, he calls out to God, and he turns from evil. He shows this humbling of himself uh, with sackcloth and ashes as an outward display of how he mourns his sin, how he sees what he's done wrong. He takes off his royal robe and he puts on sackcloth, showing that he knows that the fact that he's a king doesn't mean anything when faced with how bad he is in God's eyes. The king then proclaims a fast and tells everyone to call out mightily to God, to call to God with vigour and earnestness and desperation. The king shows, the king knows, sorry, that all they can do is call out to God and ask him for forgiveness. Finally, the king commands the Ninevites to show their repentance by turning from the evil that is in their hands. And all this we read in verse 9, on the hope that God might turn and relent. Who knows, he said, perhaps the Lord will save us. God might save us. The king knows they deserve nothing from God except punishment. Isn't this such a stark contrast to the king we saw earlier, bragging about cutting people's noses off and burning children? The most unlikely of people turning to repent and throwing himself on God's mercy. Crying out mightily for salvation. And of course, in verse 10, God does have mercy. He does indeed have mercy as he plans. God saves even the most wicked people. God saves even the most wicked people. So what does this mean for us in London in the 21st century? We're going to see three things. We're going to see that we need to call out to the Lord. We need to praise the Lord. And we need to tell others. Though I haven't personally met many of you yet, which I intend to in a minute, I assume that no one here is a brutal warlord like King Ashurnasirpil II who needs to repent of the same violence as the Ninevites. But the Bible is clear that all humans, you and me, have the same wickedness in our hearts, the same problem of sin, meaning that we deserve to be destroyed as the Ninevites were warned. Even if we aren't guilty of such violent acts as the Ninevites, all of us 
have fallen short of God's standard. And we don't fare well when compared to God's perfection. If you're with us today and wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I would be being unfaithful to the message of Jonah 3 if I didn't urge you to call out mightily to God, to call to him and ask to be saved, to ask him for forgiveness. That's the first thing. We need to call out to God. However, there is a difference because we are in an even better position than the Ninevites. An even better position. Where the king of Nineveh says in verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent. We know that God has promised that he will forgive those who call on him. We know that he's promised it. He said he will. Elsewhere in the Bible, if we were to to look, God promises that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus' death 2,000 odd years ago guarantees God's promise to be merciful for us. Looking at the cross, we can be confident in God's mercy as Jesus has taken this destruction that we deserve. Anyone who calls out to God, like the Ninevites did, will be forgiven. If even the most wicked Ninevites, even the most cruel people were saved, we can call out mightily to God for forgiveness and we will be saved. After all, God saves even the most wicked people, no matter what we've done. (coughs) But what about those of us who have called out mightily to God? And know that we will not be destroyed in this way. That we know that we are saved by God. Well, we must do two things. We must praise the Lord, firstly, for his amazing grace. We must praise the Lord for his amazing grace. Just like the Ninevites, God has had mercy on us. Blotting out our wickedness and not treating us as we deserve. But we know this came at a price. We know that this... This destruction was taken by Jesus. I think sometimes we can forget quite how much we deserve God's judgment. Quite how sinful our hearts can be. Now, for the Christian, in the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, we are being changed to be more like Jesus every day. And praise the Lord for that. We are able to say no to sin. But when we really look into our hearts or look at our lives even before we became a Christian, we'll see how much... We deserve God's judgment. We'll see we really do. But for the Christian, the story does not end there. It doesn't end there. The Lord does not want us to wallow in our sinfulness. How big our sin is should just point us to the even bigger mercy that God has. We should see how much we've been forgiven by our Lord and praise him for his extravagant mercy to us. As we see how much we've been forgiven, we catch a glimpse of quite how big big God's mercy is. It goes even deeper than the deepest depths of our sin. As you may know, the song that we'll sing in a moment, Amazing Grace, was written by a guy called John Newton. Looks like that. Describing John before he became a Christian, one source writes, Sailors were not noted for the refinement of their manners, but Newton had a reputation for profanity, coarseness, and debauchery, which shocked even many a sailor. 
Of course, John was also a slave trader, which he later came to see as the abhorrent cruelty that it is in and of itself. When he became a Christian, John knew that he deserved God's judgment for all the vile things that he'd done. He, he thought about it and he got that. But he also knew that God saves even the most wicked people. It was with how big his sin is in mind that he penned these verses. That he wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. He got that how big his sin is points to the even bigger grace that God has. For John, seeing how much of a wretch he was pointed him to how great God's grace is. And when we sing this song in a minute, may it be the same for us. Um, may we be praising the Lord for his amazing grace as we think about how little we deserve it. But secondly, this applies to those around us too, doesn't it? Remember that person who you thought was least likely to become a Christian? The person who was furthest from God? Well, today, we've seen that God saves even the most wicked people. So who are we to write off our friends or people we know, or even people we don't know, as too far from God? I think this often looks a bit more subtle than us thinking, oh, they're too wicked to be saved. Although it can sometimes. But I know that I've definitely slipped into stopping praying for people that I subconsciously think, that's never going to happen. And I stop praying for them. Well, Jonah 3 is a challenge for that. Or we might stop winsomely trying to tell them about Jesus. We might think, oh, no, they're never going to listen. And we might stop. Well, of course there is wisdom in what we say and when we say it and which conversations we have. But if anything comes from a place of, they're too wicked, they're too wicked to be saved, they'll never listen then Jonah 3 is a real challenge to us. I guess, thinking a bit broader, this logic from Jonah 3 applies to the world. Um, as we read the atrocities being committed in the Middle East at the moment, I think this is particularly relevant. Applying this, this from Jonah 3, even the Taliban militants who are terrorising people, they're not too wicked for God to save them. God can save them. And so we ought to be praying for them, not thinking they're too wicked to be saved, despite the terrible actions and atrocities they're committing. We need to be people that, as well as being amazed at our own salvation, hold out God's promise of salvation to all, to those around us, to those in our community, to those we know, no matter how wicked or how lost we think they are. After all, as Jonah declared in chapter 2, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so he can do what he wants. Salvation belongs to him. He can save whoever he pleases. Uh, we're going to confess our sins now. Um, we're going to confess our sins knowing that we come to a God who saves even the most wicked people. God has promised that he will always forgive us when we come to him. And so we have confidence when we come to him to confess. Oh, yeah, we don't wipe people off. Uh, so we're going to pray this prayer of confession together um, in bold. So, Father God, as we think about all the things we have thought, said and done that are wrong, 
we see how much we deserve your judgment. We cry out mightily to you for forgiveness, knowing that you have promised that you will have mercy on us. We praise you that you are a God who gives us grace upon grace, completely forgiving our wickedness. We pray that you would keep us praising you for your amazing grace and speaking of it to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear these words from John chapter 1, talking about Jesus. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We are people who have received grace upon grace from the Lord. Let me pray as we close. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God who has mercy on even the most wicked people. We thank you that you have had mercy on us, wicked though we were, and still are sometimes. Father, we thank you so much that you are at work in us, and that we can think of your amazing grace. (coughs) We pray that you would help us to hold out your offer of salvation (coughs) to those around us. Amen.